So welcome to the Sustainable Fashion Podcast. Joining us today is Remake's Advocacy Manager, Emily Stokel. We also have the chance of welcoming one of Remake's ambassadors, Emily McKay. Remake is a group of advocates and environmentalists who seek to educate and advocate for sustainable fashion by producing films, publishing stories, and lecturing in classrooms about fashion's impact on people and our planet. They also lead campaigns for fair living wages, fair treatments of women, and climate action. Finally, they rate brands on their sustainable practices and dialogue with them on how they can improve further. Thank you for being here, Ms. Stokel and Ms. McKay. We're grateful to have you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We're happy to be here. We'll start with industry questions. So first one, do you think we are right to expect sustainable goods to be as affordable as non-sustainable ones? Yeah, so this is a complicated one, right? Because for all of its unethical production issues, fast fashion has really made fashion accessible and affordable to the masses. And that's something that a lot of people um, get stuck on. You know, there's a lot of data that shows that the amount, like the percentage of our income that we're willing to spend on fashion has decreased significantly over the years. Like fashion used to be a major investment for people. If you think back, you know, to our grandmother's generation or even great grandmother's generation, they owned fewer things, but invested quite a bit more in them. Um, now the data kind of shows that the average monthly clothing budget for an American is about $160 a month. And that's easily the price of a dress from a sustainable fashion brand, for example. However, if you compare that to $40 for a dress from like a fast fashion, maybe like a department store level dress or like even $5 sometimes for a dress from an ultra fast fashion brand, like a forever 21 or a boohoo. Like we all understand that it isn't always easy to make that decision to buy that one piece of clothing, as opposed to like the whole fashion haul, like that, that's how fast fashion gets you. And I, you know, will be the first to say, and remake will be the first to say that we understand that that's not easy. And so what we have to get people comfortable with is changing their habits, um, getting back to this idea that it's okay to buy fewer things, but to spend more on them, um, getting back to this idea of slowing down. And so we try to encourage people to only buy things that you know you're going to use and love for a long time. That way you're reducing waste. Um, You're investing most likely in more ethical or sustainable pieces if you're spending a little bit more on them. Um, But it's also like a good mental habit, like buying less, choosing well, slowing down that mental reset is really healthy for us in this like very fast paced world that we live in. Um, so there's a lot more benefits than just what your closet's going to see. Um, a great way I think that you can kind of make this mindset shift is of course, like switching to secondhand or pre-loved. So that could mean thrifting, buying secondhand, swapping with your friends or repairing, retailoring, playing around with pieces that are already in your closet. There are lots of ways to have a sustainable closet that are just as affordable as purchasing fast fashion. You know, if you are thinking of these pre-loved ways of shopping or just simply wearing what you already have, like that's the most affordable way to approach having a sustainable wardrobe. So it doesn't have to be expensive. You know, it, you, it can be something that you think of as an investment, but it doesn't have to be. Um, in reality, it's all about consuming less. Like that's the way that we get to becoming more sustainable. Um, a couple of just like fast tips that I feel like people could put in place if they're wanting to switch to a more sustainable closet, um, but aren't, you know, don't want to spend a lot on it. You could think about reducing what you're buying. So Remake runs a no new clothes pledge where we encourage people to not buy anything new for 90 days. So you might commit to like a 90 day no buy challenge um, to help you reduce what you're buying. 
You could think about reuse. So like maybe participating in a clothing swap or organizing one with your friends um, or recycling. So like buying thrifted clothing or pre-loved clothing. Um, Those are some like fast ways that you can make that switch over to a sustainable closet without having to break the bank. Yeah, what's interesting about fast fashion is it has cheapened that investment that you were talking about. Our grandmothers used to think a lot more about what they were going to buy because they knew they were going to keep that for a long time. So the good thing about fast fashion is that it has allowed people to buy a lot quicker. So for example, for teenagers who are still experimenting with their identity, I guess that's great. But I do feel that as we get older and more settled and we're not changing sizes every single year, right, because we're not growing anymore, uh, it is important to think more long-term and I'm really attracted to this idea of buy less, but make sure that you don't regret that thing that you're going to buy because in fast fashion, we buy things, but we've all bought things that we, that was cheap were cheap. And then we immediately regret it the next week and we don't wear it at all. It's so true. And that's why I love to see that like younger folks, like you said, like teenagers who, you know, they're not wanting to like invest their styles changing, who they are is changing. So I love to see, um, that thrifting has become so cool with that generation because you can like play in that same way um, without putting your money into the fast fashion industry. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. So I guess this segues very well into our next question. Do you think that the average consumer will ever become a conscious buyer, uh, quote unquote, a conscious buyer and buy less or is this unrealistic? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm quite a hopeful person. So I, I'm going to say it's certainly possible. And um, I also want to say kind of outright before we get into this question that in order to make like a real impactful change through lessening consumption, like what Emily was just describing, it's not about the few people like, you know, the thousand remake ambassadors being perfect. It's about the majority of people trying to, you know, change their habits in whatever way that they can manage in their lifestyles, in, you know, their socioeconomic um, position. It's, um, it's about everybody kind of trying to make changes wherever you can to shop more sustainably, more consciously, more ethically. Um, but as young people, we have a lot of power in, in our voices and our influence, just even in our like personal circles. So it's not just about having our opinions on sustainable consumption, like confirmed on Instagram by the people who have our shared values. Like in order to create this change, we need to step outside of that bubble and educate people in like other generations, for example, you know, of ways that they can change their habits, taking initiative within like your own groups of family and friends is a perfect way to start that. And um, I also think that we need to, to note that there's a huge amount of responsibility that needs to be placed on businesses and brands, um, especially in marketing. I mean, I just graduated from my marketing degree and I, I've been having like a crisis of, am I like studying the most unethical thing ever? Um, but it, it is, um, up to businesses and marketing teams to genuinely educate and influence consumers to shop more consciously, like even better, like don't give your consumers kind of that toxic option. Like for example, there was a grocery store I used to go to um, when I lived in the UK that completely bland, sorry, bland, banned plastic bags. So if you didn't bring your own reusable bag, you're carrying your own stuff out of the store. And that was just your only option. They, they made sustainability the only option, um, which I think is really what brands need to start doing. And this responsibility also falls on celebrities and influencers in today's culture as well, I would say. So nothing is really going to change unless we have the biggest players in consumer influence start influencing the people who trust them to change their habits. So the, the influencers, the celebrities, and then the brands as well. I really like your hopeful stance, you know, it's often things like, uh, can we get rid of drug addiction? I like to think about it similarly. It's sort of like we get addicted to accumulating goods. And the question is, can we not be as impulsive and sort of think internally about why we buy all this stuff that we don't need? 
uh, yes, it's possible as humans, we can make that happen. But the work is a lot more complex than simply stop buying as much. I feel like it's an internal work that needs to happen. And when you mention, well, influencers and celebrities need to also make that effort. Well, even more so for them, because de they're dealing with pressures that the average person does not even cannot even fathom. So it's even more complex. So yes, thank you for that answer. Um, We'll move on now to overproduction. We all know that fast fashion has caused a lot of overproduction that causes pollution and so on. Do you think that with the advent of AI, our predictions on consumer demand might become so accurate that overproduction is virtually no longer a problem? And if not in AI, where do you see the solution to overproduction happening? This is a really, really interesting question because I think you are onto something that perhaps we could get so tailored with, you know, our predictive abilities that we um, reduce or maybe eliminate overproduction. But I worry that like that's still not going to solve fast fashion's problems problems. And, you know, I'll get into that a little bit. So right now we know, um, that out of the hundred billion garments that are produced each year, 20% of them. So that's 20 billion pieces of clothing. That's a huge amount. We're just straight up never sold. They were just overproduction, waste, burned, landfilled, or otherwise disposed of right off the bat. And the fashion industry really wants us to think that consumers are responsible for that waste. They, they want to position it based on like how much we buy. So they'll talk about the, you know, the 80 billion garments that people bought, but they don't want to talk about how much they as brands produce. Like they don't want to talk about the waste, the excess that they created. Um, when there's brands like H&M, just sitting on 4.1 billion garments, like just unsold every year that they know are not going to sold. Like that's a staggering amount. And perhaps like AI getting um, better at predicting our consumption habits or like helping them to tighten up their business practices could fix some of that. But the problem is, is that overconsumption is the very core of fast fashion's business model. Like fast fashion couldn't exist and be as big as it is without that astronomical scale. And with that huge scale, like that's what brings in the overproduction, like fast fashion is built off of extreme profits for the very wealthy people at the top of, you know, the business pyramid. And there's some financial incentive, sure, for them to get better at overproduction because that's going to um, reduce costs for them. Like if they can get more efficient with that, that's that's cost saving. So that's more profit for the business. Right. So there is incentive for that to happen. The problem is, is that like even if they get smarter at that um, like sustainable thing of eliminating their overproduction or reducing it, it's still wouldn't make them sustainable because it leaves the human part out of the equation. So while there are cost savings for brands getting more accurate about how much they're creating, um, that's a cost saving that will help them profit more, which is what they want. But it doesn't mean that they're going to start paying garment makers a living wage, for example, because like that's a cost to them. Um, and so they're not incentivized to do it. They're incentivized to do things like try to figure out how to reduce their overproduction, which is a good thing. Like it's going to be good for our planet. Um, but it's, it's not achieving sustainability until the women who make our clothes are paid fairly. You know what I mean? Like, like I do think that that is a possible future. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to be an end point. Yeah, thank you for your answer. And we're going to talk more about the human aspect later on. You kind of touch base on that. It's a really complex issue. And as you say, the business model is, is based on overproduction. The issue is, uh, it's very difficult to reach the scale that these big brands have reached without overproduction. You know, I'm very fond of all these new brands that are only producing what customers order. There are many new, more sustainable brands that are doing that. But as the competition gets tighter and tighter, it's very difficult to maintain because you want to grow, you want to stay ahead of the curve. Obviously, you cannot be, uh, be waiting to be eaten by the big fish. So it's definitely a complex issue that I'm, I'm uh, eager to look into further. 
so let's talk now about the Bangladesh Accord uh, that I actually got to know by reading your blog uh, on Remake. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and what its uncertain fate means for the industry? Yeah, so the Accord or the Bangladesh Accord is basically a workplace safety agreement that was put in place after the 2013 Rana Plaza factory disaster. So Rana Plaza factory collapse um, happened in Bangladesh. It was one of the worst industrial disasters in history. And afterwards, about 200 global apparel brands came together and signed this accord, like a legally binding accord between the global factory fashion brands and the local trade unions um, for workplace safety. And it's been hugely impactful. Um, it's, it's caused um, increased workplace safety for 2.7 million garment makers, um, 1,600 factories throughout Bangladesh. It has forced factories to do inspections and upgrades and safety trainings to install um, fire extinguishers and fire alarms, and it's prevented building collapses. Like it, it has prevented disasters like Rana Plaza from happening again. Um, like I said, the accord was first signed back in May 2013, so right after the April 2013 disaster. Um, it was set to expire in 2018. So it was originally like a five-year agreement, but a, a successor accord was extended until 2021. Um, so now it's coming up upon expiration again, and we are demanding not only its continuation, but its expansion. So right now, you know, it's referred to as the Bangladesh Accord. It is, it is a cord for, it is an accord for garment factories in Bangladesh, but of course there are, um, workplace accidents and disasters happening in other countries, we would like to see the accord extended to countries um, like, for example, Pakistan has recently had some very disastrous um, garment factory fires and collapses. And so we would like to see that workplace safety that we know works, like we know it's been effective in Bangladesh. We'd like to see it extended to other countries. Um, so where the accord sits um, is in um, May of this year, it was given a three month extension. So we have until August 31st um, to continue negotiations with the brands and get them to sign on to the accord. Like I mentioned, 200 brands signed on to the first accord. Um, a couple of brands have already said that they would sign on to the accord, but negotiations are really still ongoing. It's quite a messy negotiation process. Remake is specifically targeting five of the fast fashion brands who produce the most in Bangladesh. Um, all of these brands signed the first accord, but have not committed to renewing the accord. So we're going after H&M, Zara, Tommy Hilfiger, American Eagle, and CNA, and pushing them to renew the accord because Simply put, we know it works. We know that it saves lives. Um, and so, like I said, we have until about, we have until um, the end of August to make sure that it is signed. And um, it would be hugely devastating for this like binding agreement between brands and the workers to, to disappear because we know how effective it has been. And why do you think there is such a resistance to signing it again? Is it uh, sort of these brands are making the claim that it's the government's responsibility to regulate these things? We are only outsourcing production. We're not responsible for this. Well, we are responsible for the, for the safety, but only insofar as the government is willing to cooperate. Is this what they're claiming? Why, why is there such a Is it they don't want to take on the burden, the cost of... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's lots of reasons that they will put forward, but what it comes down to is, again, like I said, with um, decreasing production versus paying workers more. Decreasing production or becoming more efficient, perhaps that's a cost saving, but paying workers more, that's a cost to the brand. This is the same thing. Um, ensuring this workplace safety 
there's a cost associated with that. And it's been this real race to the bottom with fast fashion brands, with how fast they want to produce and how quickly they want to get product out um, and how cheap they want to put it on the market. Like they want to be the cheapest and they want to be the fastest. And so that just drives down workplace safety. Um, And so despite all the various reasons or like the responsibility, um, you know, brands will try to say that various other parties should be responsible for this. Brands have the most power. Brands have the most money in this situation. Brands are in control of how fast things are produced, of the cost that they're putting them to market. They have the most control in the situation. So they will put forward reasons that they they want to push the responsibility off onto other parties, um, but they're the ones holding the most power. And so it is their responsibility. Um, and yeah, the the reason the reason behind it um, is is cost. Like they don't want to they don't want to make these crucial investments into workplace safety. But what I will say is that consumer pressure is really working here. So like I mentioned, we, um, we've been campaigning those brands and we've been sending emails to brand executives. We've been commenting on their social media. Um, if they like think that they're not going to get away with like softening the accord or dipping under the accord because consumers are demanding it, that's going to make them concede to it. Um, because it's, it's crucial to how they're perceived. Um, and so consumer pressure, like this is just a complete example of how consumer pressure is going to make a world of difference in this situation, in these negotiations. Yes. uh, I'm very curious to see how the debate unfolds. So let's now go back to, um, the remake organization and talk, uh, to you, Ms. McKay. You're a Remake Ambassador. Can you first tell us what a Remake Ambassador does just briefly and then tell us the most difficult and rewarding uh, aspects of being a a Remake Ambassador? For sure. Um, So I became a Remake Ambassador just uh, late last year. Um, And basically, we just get to be a part of this absolutely incredible community of advocates and spread our new kind of knowledge that we get through Remake um, on our social media and through events that we host um, and educating people in our lives and in our communities about sustainable fashion and about fighting for the rights of garment makers and artisans all over the world. Um, Obviously, we get access to some pretty amazing educational materials from the Remake team. Our monthly community calls are just so eye-opening and just access to this pretty amazing community. And and we have a responsibility that we carry with that because we represent um, this incredible organization and uh, we kind of get to speak on behalf of of Remake and all of the amazing campaigns that we're always doing um, on social media and and in in the broader world. And and we get to really push those and educate people. And it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. I'm very, very proud to be um, a Remake Ambassador and the Community Organizer for Canada. It's it's, um, one of the most amazing parts of my life. Um, To talk on the most difficult part, I would probably say the imposter syndrome, um, which I've learned more about in these last few months and really experienced. It's like just never feeling educated enough, never feeling like you're doing enough um, or even that you really know what you're talking about um, even when what we are doing we know is making a positive impact the industry's hor- horrific problems can be so overwhelming that sometimes it just do- doesn't never feels like you're you as an individual are doing enough um, and I would also say like the burden and exhaustion of being an empathetic person person and being surrounded by other empathetic people it can be very anxiety inducing sometimes and just super overwhelming to the scope of um, and scale of the industry that we're, we're working with and, and the change that we're trying to create. Sometimes you feel a little bit like you're screaming into a void. Um, but when we hear back from brands, like what we've been doing with campaigning for, for renewing the accord, that's when, you know, you can actually 
hear people getting back to you and it's uh, it's very rewarding. Um, the most rewarding part of being an ambassador, I would definitely say like when concrete initiatives, you know, you see them kind of come to fruition. So like the success of the pay up campaign or like the number of commitments that we've had for the no new clothes pledge, like things like that, where you can see I'm a numbers person. So like when I see that, it really, um, you know, reiterates why you, why you became an ambassador in the first place. And also just the change that I've seen personally, um, within my own circles, within my friends and family, kind of starting to turn to me for advice of how they can shop more sustainably, how they can shop more consciously. It's like very, very uplifting. And I'm sure that that's a really common thing that Remake Ambassadors experience in their own lives. Um, I would say that my favorite part is definitely the overwhelming sense of community and friendship within the Remake team and, and the ambassadors and connecting with people with shared passions and values. It really, really helps to combat like climate anxiety. And um, I've made some pretty amazing connections and friends uh, who are constantly like educating me, helping me further uh, my understanding of this, this industry and, and ways that I can help make it a force for good. Yeah, thank you for such a great and honest answer. Uh, so one of the, I read that one of the expectations of a Remake Ambassador is to host two sustainable fashion events per year. I was just curious to know more about them. Are they organized solely by the Ambassador or are they done in partnership uh, with Remake, other members mm -hmm. of the Remake team? Yeah, so this totally kind of depends on the nature of the event and, and what the ambassador is, is looking for. Um, so the ambassador can totally be like taking charge and hosting something um, themselves, such as like a film screening or a clothing swap, which Emily was kind of mentioning earlier. Those are super popular, awesome events. Um, and the remake team is kind of there whenever you need them um, for offering any support where, where you need it, such as like social promotion or um, promotion on the website. and that sort of thing, pushing the event so you get more um, people coming. Um, personally, as a community organizer for Canada, each event that I've been hosting has been in collaboration with another um, Canadian Remake Ambassador um, because I just really want to give them the chance to help design events and um, do that kind of around their specific interests. So that's kind of how I take on the um, event coordination. Um, so for example, like we hosted a panel to highlight the work of another Canadian ambassador, her name is Yuda, and her work with um, her local community climate council. Um, so things like that, that just like really lift up the voices of other ambassadors. Um, but it's really kind of what you make of it in terms of the um, ambassador events. They can be like as standard as a, as a clothing swap or like, you know, totally something that the remake team has never seen before. And the remake team is always there to support you no matter what. I like that. That sounds really fun and uh, freeing. <laughs> Uh, so now let's go back to talking about labor. Um, and of course, uh, both you, Ms. McKay, and Ms. Tokol can contribute to this. But uh, let's start with you, Ms. Tokol, since you uh, were mentioning the human aspect. So when you think about sustainability, you don't solely consider the environmental side. You also look at the human labor side as well. It fits into the sustainability definition for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can't we can't claim to have solved fast fashion's problems or come up with a sustainable solution for the industry until um, the humans who are a part of this industry, who are in part of this environment are taken care of. And um, what really drew me, so that is like, that's core to Remake's mission. Like Remake is um, very focused on garment makers and the women who make our clothes. And that's what drew me to Remake's mission. Um, my sustainability journey actually started with an interest in labor activism. And I really just, I can't separate, you know, you'll hear people say like social sustainability or ethics from that sustainability conversation. Like it's one and the same for me. Um, 
yeah, just like a little bit on my background. Like, um, my grandma was a single mother of six kids, raised six kids and she was a labor activist. She worked in a plastics factory and was a part of a lot of walkouts and strikes. Um, she was a part of a union and, you know, while she had a difficult life, I know that that union and that right to collectively bargain made an incredible difference in, in how difficult her life was, you know, that, that she was able to be, to be safe and get by, even though it it was a fight and a struggle still. Um, and as I got deeper and deeper into the space, like I just came to realize that so many workers in the fashion industry do not have these same protections, um, that those protections have been stripped away over the years. Um, and, yeah. And, and that just so many of the people who work in this industry are young women, um, you know, people, my age, people who are mothers, you know, people just like my grandmother. And so like, for me, it's just impossible to take that human element out of it. We just, you know, the sustainable changes that the fashion industry is making things like recycled materials or organic materials, like those are those are wonderful. That progress is absolutely needed, but I just can't, I can't like see that finish line until the people who work in this industry are, are taken care of. And like I said, that's, what's made me really passionate about remake. The human aspect is right there in our definition of sustainability. Um, and clothing production is not sustainable if it's not sustainable for the people who make our clothes. So adding on to that, then what are the pillars that companies need to consider if they want to treat workers fairly? And more specifically, what what is an, a fair wage versus an unfair one? Yeah. So Remake has a um, brand evaluation index. We have that on our website. You know, if, if people are looking for recommendations of brands who are doing things well, and our brand index takes into consideration not only the sustainability elements, but worker pay, diversity and leadership, like various other human aspects um, to the supply chain. And so we look at that. We look at, um, you know, transparency. We look at raw materials. We look at maker well-being, um, all those elements holistically. And um, yeah, you also talked about fair wages. So when we say workers paid fairly, what does that mean? Um, So we base our understanding of that off of living wage research from the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, or the age, sorry, the Asia Wage Floor Alliance. So we base our research off of their living wage research. And basically their research says that a living wage is the amount of money that can meet an individual and family's basic needs. So that means food, shelter, clothing, and healthcare costs. And they have calculated what a living wage would be um, in various countries based on various criteria. So you know, what individuals need in order to be supported, um, what they need in terms of the cost of food in their country, the cost of rent, the cost of goods in their country. Um, and it's all calculated off of like a typical work week. So, um, like a 40 hour work week. And the fact of the matter is, is that garment workers, you know, like I said, their research um, is mostly dealing with Asia, but garment workers all over the world are earning far below what would be considered a living wage by these criteria. Um, and this this feels, it feels so um, fundamental, you know, we're talking food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, protecting your family, like that feels so base level. Um, and so we just, um, we can't, you know, like I said, like we can't claim a brand success until they're meeting that base level um, living wage criteria. Um, I'd like to ask a follow-up question, but would you like to add anything, Miss McKay, before I do that, or should I just go ahead? I think, um, yeah, everything that that Emily was describing, um, obviously, I'm, I'm in complete um, agreement with, but I also just wanted to, to add like, to me, like sustainability 
I guess kind of what Emily was saying, like you can't have one without the other. When I picture like sustainability, especially in terms of, you know, what I've studied in, in my business degree or my BBA would be like a pill, uh, three pillars of, of, you know, like environmental, social and economic sustainability, because in order for a business to remain literally like sustain themselves in lasting, you know, that the standing the test of time, you cannot expect your business to continue to run if you're treating your workers, whether that be the outsourcing that you're using in another country or, you know, right there in your home office, if you're not treating your workers properly, if they are not, you know, living, you know, their, their baseline needs, then you can't expect your business to be sustainable, not in like the environmental sense, but in the literal definition of being sustainable, your, your product will not be like, good quality, your, your company will not last. Um, so if you think, if you think of it in terms of like an actual business perspective, being socially sustainable is good for business as well as being environmentally sustainable, because if we destroy our earth, there's no, there's nowhere for you to be selling your clothes and, and making money. <laughs> Um, just as you want to be economically sustainable as a business. So I just wanted to kind of throw that in there because I think it's important to, to um, note that all three of those pillars of sustainability are completely intertwined and you can't expect to succeed as a person or as a business without um, all three of them. Um, before we move on to the next topic, I just want to say I absolutely agree with you when it comes to the human side. I do believe that when we, on the very long term, uh, if you don't take into account the human uh, labor part, you will definitely not survive. However, uh, when I look at business pragmatically and I look at the medium to short term, it's very difficult for companies that act ethically to actually make it. And the reason why is just because as human beings, as, as consumers today, we are a very consumer society, uh, the lower your prices are, the more people are going to flock to you. And if you are a big brand and you're competing against another big brand, doing the right thing may be very punishing on the short to medium term and may not allow you to make those long-term changes. I often think about um, organic cotton growers who are not able to get their certification before uh, launching into the market because it's so costly and people don't buy their cotton and so they're not able to survive long enough to make it. So I think it's very what you're bringing up is crucial, but I think the practical side of it is incredibly complex. And I, I, I often wonder how big companies can make that transition without, um, with the support of consumers, without having consumers yeah. just flock to the cheapest thing. I think that's going to be difficult um, to achieve without regulation and incentivization for the businesses to do the right thing. You know, we have spent uh, 10 to 20, you know, 10 to 15 years as a ethical fashion space, you know, advocating for consumer change. And as you say, like, it will get us so far, you know, but we're, there's a real role to play um, for regulation, for governments to set in, for in, to incentivize doing the right thing to, you know, that that's going to policy change is going to be necessary to change like something as big as what we're talking about um, in order to make competition fair. Um you know, I don't, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but for example, Remake is working on um, the Garment Worker Protection Act in the state of California. And so we are fighting to close a legal loophole that would ensure that garment workers are paid the state mandated minimum wage. And there, there's incentive for ethical brands who are already doing that to get behind that bill and say, we need this bill passed because the brands who are not doing things ethically, that allows them to keep making their goods cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, which makes it not a fair space for competition. So this bill like is good for ethical business, you know? And so that's just an example of like how policy is going to need to step in in order to like make the playing field more fair um, because Right now, like the, the brands that are doing it unethically, like they're 
they're cheating the system. You know, the minimum wage law exists. They've found a loophole to get around it. Um, and so regulation is going to have to step in at some point. Yeah, thank you for that. So let's move on to, I think, an exciting topic for both of you. Uh, so secondhand clothes and secondhand websites. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about secondhand clothing? What are the benefits of shopping from vintage stores in general besides sustainability, do you think? Yeah, so obviously there's great sustainability aspects um, for shopping secondhand, though that is a very, very complex kind of conversation in terms of, you know, waste and that kind of stuff. But setting that aside, um, shopping vintage, firstly, I'll just say is way more fun. <laughs> in my personal opinion, um, than shopping new. Uh, secondly, when you start shopping secondhand, especially with vintage, your bandwidth for trying new things with style just grows exponentially. Um, it's kind of like bringing a piece of antique furniture into your home. It brings character and charm and this amazing story, if you're lucky. So in order to change the mindset, I think that we really quickly kind of touched on in the very first question that clothes are disposable, it's kind of crucial to be emotionally connected to your clothes. And that just comes so naturally when you're shopping vintage. Um, you can kind of confidently shop knowing that you're not going to look like everybody else. You'll have so much more fun kind of discovering your style and something different, experimenting with colors and patterns and silhouettes and different from different eras, which is so kind of gives you that unique sense of style. And you're also just straight up saying no to fast fashion and yes to ethically exploring your own style and it's almost like your own personal little style revolution I would say. Well that's very true vintage shopping definitely gives you a more unique style that differs from the average uh, consumer definitely. Would you like to add anything Miss Stokel? Oh, no, I mean, I think Emily McKay hit it all. Um, secondhand is really the way I came to this space because I think it's just more fun. Um, and so I think like if we can help people see that that is like a cool option, a fashionable option, a fun option, that's definitely going to be a way to win them over. I'll also just add quickly that like I find that young people today, especially on social media, and stuff they love to talk we love to you know pretend influencer and talk about our clothes and tell that story and how much more how much more can you say when you're shopping fast fashion other than oh I ordered it on ASOS like that's that's the story but if it's like oh I was you know I was traveling and I was in this amazing vintage shop in you know Japan and I got this thing and, it, and the and the person at the store told me that it came from like that just makes you so much more connected to your clothes. And when you're connected to your clothes, you're not going to treat them as something that's as disposable as, you know, a plastic water bottle that you can wear one day and you don't need the next. Like you're going to want to keep those things forever, which is the best thing you can do with your clothes. You're right. That's that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. The story behind the clothes is, is very important. Uh, so let's talk then about big resale websites, companies like the Real Real that are making enough revenue today to open impressive brick and mortar stores. Do you think that these big players are a threat to smaller vintage and thrift stores that we, we might know? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question. I definitely don't think that they are the biggest threat. I think fast fashion will always be the biggest threat because they're the ones who are competing on price. Um, one thing within the resale space, like, yes, the resale space is booming, but one thing that is abundantly clear is that even with more resale shops and more resale shoppers, there is no shortage of secondhand clothing. We have way more secondhand clothing in market than we could than we can consume. Um, there's so much used clothing in the market that only about 10 to 20% of it that runs through charity shops actually resells in, in those stores in the global North. Um, the vast majority of it is still exported to countries in the global South. Um, there's 
an incredible organization called the Orr Foundation. Remake just had the opportunity to speak with them on our community call yesterday. And that video is going to be available on our website shortly. But they do research into Contamanto market, which is a reseller market in Accra, Ghana. It is likely one of the largest secondhand markets in the world. It is the largest um, in Ghana. And um, they receive a lot of the exports that come to the to the global south that are not sold on the global north's market. And it's really abundantly clear that there's no shortage of secondhand clothing here because otherwise, what would the incentive be to export it elsewhere? Um, even in Accra, where like an incredible amount of clothing is resold, like the Or Foundation shared a statistic with us that's just staggering to me, which is that um, in three months, Contamanto Market recirculates as much clothing as ThreadUp has recirculated in its 10 years of existence. Like they recirculate a staggering amount of clothing. And yet 40% of what comes to the market still ends up in landfill because that's how much there is. And so like, there's just such a sheer volume. So I don't think in terms of like competition, like we are dealing with, you know, like a shortage of supply or things like that. Um, I do think that there is room in this space though, for the big resale brands, the real reels of the world, for example, or even, you know, we'll see a lot of firsthand fashion brands kind of dipping into the secondhand space. Like this is something that firsthand fashion brands are starting to do. And I do think that there's room for them to be making a bigger impact um, in this space. Um, For example, uh, I think that they, you know, if they are profiting so massively from the secondhand space that support for reparations to the secondhand industry in the global South, like is something that they could be doing to actually be making more of an impact supporting the portion of the secondhand market that actually recirculates the largest amount of goods with the least amount of investment and security. Like, I think that that's a crucial part of the conversation. Um, But no, I I don't think that these big companies are a threat to the space. I do think we also have to consider like the fact that um, even as the secondhand industry grows um, and, and these companies will come forward with like, this is how much we resold. This is how much we recycled, et cetera, et cetera. We also need to be asking the question, like how much did not sell? Um, so for example, the real real has recently put out in a Vogue business piece that their sell through rate was 99%. So that's, that's pretty incredible. Like they're not, um, a lot of what they acquire, they are reselling. Um, but some other larger organizations like don't provide that data. And so we don't have an understanding yet for how much is not resold, how much is passed on to places um, in most likely in the global South. And so there are still problems yet to solve concerning these, uh, these larger resale businesses. And I don't think that we should treat resale as like always being a perfect silver bullet, but I don't think that the competition necessarily, um, like, I don't think that, yeah, the competition within the space, it's like for, for a shortage of like secondhand materials to sell by any means. Uh, right. That's a very good point. And I, I think it's uh, very interesting that you mentioned the 99% uh, selling rate. Uh, I think the real real is focuses on luxury. And I think a lot of people are going to want to get their hands on cheaper luxury. So I think for uh, websites like perhaps Depop, they may not be making those the same uh, numbers. Uh, yeah, when- yeah, it, it does seem like the like the, the higher end um, that the brand is associated with, the higher their resale rate. Um, it seems like there is like correlation between that. And it makes sense um, that those aren't the things that are going to end up landfilled um, necessarily. So, so it does, so that does make sense. I do also want to commend, like, um, you know, I spoke about how I, I think that it's important for brands, um, bigger brands in the space to like do their part um, 
injustice within the circular economy. And I did just want to quickly commend, sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> Can you hear him? Yeah, but it's okay. <laughs> okay. We'll see if he, my husband's going to work. We'll see if he comes down. No, I did just want to commend um, Vestiaire Collective, for example, because they have recently given some funding to some of the Ore Foundation's work in Contamanto Market. Um, you know, it's not, a, again, not a perfect solution, but like they have stepped up to support some of those justice-led initiatives. And that's something that I think the bigger players in the space need to be doing more of. So I did want to commend um their efforts in that, in that way. I know, um, I, you know, I know that, um, they've supported some incredible initiatives there, um, that are grassroots and on the ground. And that's the type of thing that I think we need to be seeing the big brands backing. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that supply is not an issue because um, previous uh, people we've interviewed have also said the same thing. I guess my, my question had more to do with sort of the way Amazon's doing it. It has, it's, it has all these brands under its name and it's controlling sort of the marketing and things like that. So that's what I meant by a threat to smaller players. It's sort of like the charm of going to a small vintage store. It's not, it's not the same as going to a website that has a million choices and so on. Yeah, it is an interesting one. Um, I think that, you know, that's fair to say, especially as consumers like shift more to online. Like I do think that there is reason for consumers to want to shop that way. Um, so it, it, it will be interesting to see kind of how, how the industry evolves, like how the consumers um, decide to shop and if the smaller brands can keep up with the more online focused customer I do think that um, I think that will be a challenge but I think that vintage shops and thrift shops are already up against that challenge with fast fashion if that makes sense because the fast fashion brands have already figured out how to do the super fast free shipping and the online and all the options and filtering and tailoring so like and they're doing it cheaper. So that competition already exists in the space and they're already competing against it. Um, so I guess that's like where I push back on it a little bit is because I think that like a bigger competitor already is out there and they're already having to fight against that. Who's able to do it faster and cheaper. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's a great point. So we don't have much time left. So I want to make sure I get to the last questions. Um, we know that historically luxury brands have been in the habit of burning off unsold goods to prevent the devaluation of their products. With the rise of secondhand websites, do you think that luxury brands will have to redefine what it means to create a luxury product? Yes, <laughs> simple answer, yes. Um, sec I think secondhand and resale is really starting to shift the mindset of luxury brands um, and to really help have this mindset of producing something that they know is guaranteed to have resale value. So like, for example, like something like a Chanel bag that is only ever going to go up in price um, for resale value. It's continuously going up and up. And in order for a luxury brand to remain, you know, relevant in the space, they need to have um, resale value for their products. So beginning to consign their own products or invest and collaborate with um, the secondhand market, I think it's going to be really um, important, such as like Keering, which owns, you know, Gucci and uh, Bottega Veneta and all those kind of brands um, purchased actually a 5% stake recently in Vestiaire Collectives. They're, you know, showing that they know the relevance of the secondhand market to the, the luxury industry. And I think it's a very smart business decision as well for brands because it communicates that the brand truly believes um, in the value of their product because they'll confidently have it, have it sold again and support the um, online resellers that are selling their products again, um, no matter how many hands that it's passed through. Um, the fear that some brands have is that obviously that this will devalue um, the new product. Um, and that's kind of where the redefining comes into play. I think we'll always have 
people out there, consumers out there, you know, the 1% in the world who are always going to be supporting the new. And with the increase in use of secondhand and, and resale of luxury, um, I think people are also going to be more incentivized to buy new if you can manage it, if you are that, you know, 1%, uh, because you'll think of it in terms of an investment that you can one day resell if you know that it's going to have that resale value. So another example kind of of this growing relationship between luxury and, and secondhand would be like something where, you know, the designer Christian Siriano pulled two dresses from his past collection, actually from ThreadUp, um, and ended up actually altering them and, and sending them down the runway in a new collection um, as, you know, alongside that new collection. So like mixing uh, new with the secondhand landscape is becoming more and more common brands upcycling brands like Nanushka are doing really amazing things with this um, in terms of you know buying back or or having that sort of take back program and recycling their own products um, I think that that's becoming really going to become a necessity in order to remain relevant in the industry uh, I'd also like to like to add that you know I think that we're going to see a transparency change um, expectation from luxury brands. Like for so long, the luxury fashion industry has kind of been able to hide behind this sort of glamorous curtain and pride itself on being this sort of like very mysterious industry that like only the insiders kind of got the look into. And I've seen it firsthand. I used to work in um, photo shoot production in London on like, you know, editorials and major ad campaigns. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I got that sneak peek, whereas before, you know, the average person, they get that sneak peek, like maybe when they watch the Devil Wears Prada, and that's pretty much it. Um, but I think that that's changing. So thanks to organizations like Remake who hold brands accountable, and also this consumer's kind of growing interest in being that like insider, seeing backstage of shows and photo shoots, like consumers want to know what's going on behind the curtain. And I think that is going to extend to the supply chain as well. And consumers are going to start demanding um, transparency within the supply chain. And if you're paying a luxury price, you, I think you deserve to know exactly what went into your garment, who made it, whether those facts line up with the price point that you're paying. Yeah, those are excellent points. And I, I'm very interested to see how these brands are going to evolve and the sort of glamorous veil that's been happening and that they've been running on for years is being pulled. And I want to see how brands are going to try to differentiate themselves now that their goods are more available to the average person. Um, so since I'm still with you, Ms. McKay, I'll, I'll ask you the social media question before going back to Ms. Tokel for the last question. Hopefully, is that okay if we go a little bit over time? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I got this, I was inspired to ask this question by reading your blog, uh, where you spoke a little bit about your frustration on the sustainability conversation online, how sometimes it can be uh, so, um, uh, I guess people online can attack so viciously. Uh, why do you think there's such little tolerance and kindness on social media when discussing such topics as sustainability, which is still an ongoing discussion? It's not like, it's not, it's not set in stone. Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, like, really, um, I think, you know, people, uh, we've seen it more so in the last year than ever before, how divided people are, and how people are really, really starting to just think in black and white, and we need to be the opposite, we need to be, you know, kind and and open to just discuss discussions about things like, like sustainability along with so many other you know things that are going on in the world and um i know that you know emily stoke has some great points on this as well about just like wanting to always see sort of an end result and wanting to have like that that perfect like you know finish line and sustainability is such a um you know uh, that, uh, that type of a thing where we just want it to be solved, where it's, it's not something that there is really a finish line on. It's a continuous conversation. And I thank you for reading my blog. That's very sweet. Like uh, I touched on it in that blog post about just seeing people having these conversations about like, 
oh, well, you're wearing a leather jacket. I thought you were a sustainable fashion blogger. Like, like what the, what the heck is going on? Like you're a hypocrite, da, 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 da. And they just sort of pounce um, when you, you need to kind of take a step back and be like, wait a second. Like I bought this, you know, 10 years ago before I even knew what the word sustainability meant. Why is it a problem that I'm wearing it now? Like you can't just jump to conclusions about people's um, life experiences, about, you know, what they can afford or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, I'll pass it over to, to Emily Stoke as well to, to touch on this because I think it's a very, um, it, it's a conversation that we could probably have an entire other episode about in terms of just the sustainability conversation on social media because it really can get very um, frustrating and, and you know, off-putting, I think. Yeah, I think it kind of boils down to the fact that like as a society, we have issues with progress, like with seeing things, um, as a progression or as a journey, we have issues with, um, saying I used to think this and now I think this, or I learned more and I updated the way that I look at this, or I changed my mind on this. Like those are not things that we are taught to think of as okay in our society. And that's a big problem. And social media really makes that black and white. Like it, like Emily McKay said, um, can erase that nuance, can oversimplify issues. And I think one of the biggest ways that it does um, is it like takes the learning journey out of it. Like you are either achieved or not achieved um, your sustainability goal. And that's just not how it works. That's not what this conversation is about. And so I think a way to show more tolerance and kindness about the topics of sustainability um, you know, just a few things that I think work, um, or to be positive, to talk about the journey, talk about ways that you used to think one way and you learned something new and you updated that information because that's a relatable thing. Other people have had that experience and that will bring that will, uh, that will bring them along in the journey because they'll, they'll see themselves in you. Um, I think that, you know, people, they want to be inspired. They want to be encouraged. Um, I, so I think that there's there's a way for us to bring kindness and positivity back into this conversation, um, and ultimately, like keep our focus on leading by example, making sustainable clothing cool, and um, making it feel more open. Yeah, thank you for. This I also just want to. Yeah, sorry, I just want to touch on that as well, like for quickly, um, it made me think so much about reading through the document that we've been um, receiving from Remake about reaching out to the brands to renew the accord. And I just um, loved seeing there was like a little note that was put towards like all the comment, like the potential comments you could put on their Instagram posts that say like, be kind, like do it with kindness. Like, even though, you know, we are so highly against what these brands are doing, you know, we still want to be doing everything that we do with grace and kindness. And, and so I think that that's, you know, you need to take that in everything that you do online it's so easy to you know be a bully or or attack um, when you see someone doing something that that you don't agree with but you never know the whole story so always approaching every every communication that you have online um, with kindness and with understanding is like the only way that we're ever going to have like continue this sort of positive conversation yeah I absolutely agree so last question um what might you say to someone who's never tried secondhand shopping? Well, I would say that to only shop new is basically an act of depriving oneself of so many opportunities. So trends, you know, trends have led this industry and perpetuated overconsumption for decades. We all know this. When it comes to secondhand, especially when you approach it with like an open mind to discover new things, trends can kind of sort of dissipate. And, you know, they're still there, obviously thrift shopping in general has become a trend in itself. Um, but there's so much opportunity to kind of lean into your personal style and discover what you're actually really drawn to, not just what, you know, the CEOs of a major corporation 
and are sitting up in their ivory tower deciding what you should buy, deciding what the next trend should be. You really get to just see clothes with your own open eyes when you when you leave the world of new and trends sort of behind. And the secondhand industry has everything you need and more than enough to close the entire world over countless and countless times, just as Emily was, was describing. And so there's no need, there's no need for new, except maybe like underwear. (laughs) Um, And someone with an aversion to wearing pre-loved or secondhand, I would encourage them to, you know, open your mind to the wonder of furthering the life of a garment. Wearing things with a history can give you such confidence, um, as can wearing something that you know you did a good deed in buying. You know you kept something out of a landfill or out of a water system or whatever that may be, or, you know, stopped something from being sent away and just, you know, polluting another country. Um, And I have to get used to really having this conversation a lot because I've recently purchased a luxury consignment store. And with, you know, a lot of the clients who come in, you know, they are so used to only shopping new, you know, when they go to the big city, when they go to the Calgary's or the Vancouver's or the Toronto's, and they go to Holt Renfrew or or Nordstrom, and that's the only way they know to shop. And so they're like, oh, it's secondhand. I don't know how I feel about that. And it's not like it's a dirty thing. It's it's comes with so much more wonder and, and opportunity, I think, than shopping new. That's what I would say. I love that. Yeah, I think um, we would love to help show them the way. <laughs> Uh, check out Remake for more advice. Um, outside of my work with Remake, I run Preloved Podcast, which is an interview show all about the vintage and secondhand industry. So if you want to hear hundreds of people's stories about why they love Preloved, I think you know you can start with their stories and find someone you connect with there. Um, but it's really, it's not as hard or scary as you might think it is. And there are folks out there who would be excited to take you on your first secondhand shopping adventure. Awesome. Well, that was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Emily Stokel. Thank you, Emily McKay for coming today. Um, and we'd love to have you back at some point in the future, if you're willing to. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much.